0: Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. We so far in our series on first things have studied God's preeminence, creation, marriage, God's word and sin, and today, salvation. And if you are physically able, I'd like to ask you to stand with me as we read God's word. I have been a big proponent of this ever since I read it in Nehemiah. When they opened the book, the people stood up out of reverence and honor for God and His Word. We're going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 through 24. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever." Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. And Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. Genesis 3 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It contains the foundation for everything that comes after. It explains why we have so many problems. It explains why we need a Savior. It's a turning point. It is a sad story, but also it's the beginning of a redemption story that continues throughout the rest of Scripture. Now, last week we looked at the bad news. Sin. This week... We have the good news, salvation. We see the first promise of a Savior. A Savior brings salvation. But what is salvation? What does it mean to be saved? How does one get saved? Are you saved? If you are saved, what are you saved from? The question of being saved is the big question of the Bible. The topic of salvation is the primary subject of the Bible. And God takes man's bad situation because of sin and seeks to remedy it. And I want to share with you, and I want you to see three truths this morning about salvation that originate in Genesis chapter 3. Now, the first truth is this. Salvation is God's idea. He initiated it. Genesis 3.15 is actually called the Proto-Evangelium the first gospel. Luther said of this verse that it embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. What did God do in verse 15? He promised a Savior. The promise of salvation from the curse of sin is implied in this prophecy of the serpent's destruction and defeat. The Savior, the one who would redeem fallen humanity, is said Um, that he would be the seed of the woman. Now this gives the first hint at the virgin birth of Christ, declaring that he would be the seed of the woman rather than the seed of the man, that God was Jesus' only father, and that there would be enmity between his seed and the woman's seed, between him and the serpent. There would be a continuous conflict between Christ and Satan and their followers. This verse also says that he will suffer. God announces that Satan would wound the Messiah. You shall bruise his heel. And this alludes to Christ's sufferings and death. That Satan would be bruising his heel, meaning his human nature. But it also tells us that he will be victorious. That he will reign. That he will triumph over evil and death. The Messiah will crush Satan with a mortal wound. uh, he shall bruise your head now satan 's destruction represents the full reversal of Adam's fall, and the promise is of Christ, the deliverer of fallen man, from the power of Satan. Paul in Romans 16:20 said, "The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet." Hebrews 2:14 says that through death, Jesus would render would would destroy him who had the power over death that is the devil and in first john 3 and verse 8 we read that the son of god was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil now this is not something that god just came up with because of what happened in genesis 3 he purposed this before the world began in ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5 we read that those who are believers were chosen in him before the foundation of the world and in Acts 2.23, we know that Jesus was delivered up by the, the, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This promise of a Savior came unasked for. It was unlooked for. God basically broke through in mercy, giving hope of forgiveness, giving hope of new life so that sinners would not perish, so that sinners would not live without hope. No sooner had Adam and Eve fallen that God began to show and reveal the remedy and the cure. God authored it. He initiated it. We also see that God carried out the plan as well. The second truth is that salvation is God's work. Now in verse 20, we see that Adam named his wife and he named her Eve, which means life. Even though she wasn't a mother yet. And what we see in Adam naming Eve is the continuance of hope. That Adam, in a sense, is showing his restored relationship with God by believing God's promise that the faithful woman would bring the seed, would bear the offspring that would defeat Satan. And Adam then would, you could even say that he named her in faith, trusting that God would bring forth the deliverer from the woman. Because God said that he would defeat Satan through the seed of the woman. God provided a way for Adam and Eve. uh, Which foreshadowed his provision to come. God did for them what they could not do for themselves. He clothed them. Now they did come to him with, with fig leaves on. That wouldn't have been a real good covering. And he covers them with the skins of animals. A sacrifice was made for them. An animal had to die. Now this act of God is implying animal sacrifice, which was God's idea. And it would be then for them, at that point in time, instruction in the only acceptable mode of worship for sinful creatures, through faith in a Redeemer. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness. And God provided a covering for Adam and Eve for their sin through a sacrifice. So we see God caring for this first family in spite of their sin. And God in his grace provided a way for Adam and Eve to be right with him, to be restored in their relationship with him. And ultimately, he provided a way for us. Now, the animals from whose skins they were clothed point to Jesus, the great sacrifice, Jesus, our salvation. He bore our sin. He took the guilt for our sin upon Himself on the cross and was punished for it. In 1 Peter 2, 24, we read that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Isaiah foresaw this. In fact, go to Isaiah 53. Because Isaiah foresaw the cross. And in Isaiah 53, starting at verse 4, He says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Jesus took our curse. Hebrews 9.28 tells us that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And if we are saved, if we can, can, can profess faith in Christ this morning, it's because God did it. It's because God provided a way. It's because God drew us in His kindness and His mercy and His grace to Himself. It's because He called us by His grace. It's because He gives us faith to believe. He causes us to be born again to a living hope. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Now the Bible uses the term salvation in, in many different ways, but specifically with reference to the redemption of believers from sin's power and sin's penalty. That salvation, in essence, is being saved from the ultimate consequence of sin. That would be the judgment of God, the wrath of God. And this salvation is secured by Jesus, who, as the, the scriptures tell us, delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, the Bible usage of the term salvation actually is used in in, in several different tenses. For example, uh, the Bible shows that believers were saved from before the foundation of the world, uh, that believers were being saved by the work of God in history through the ages, that believers are saved by being uh, being justified by faith in Christ, It also uses the term as we are being saved, as God sanctifies us and makes us holy, and it also expresses the fact that we will be saved when we experience the fulfillment of our redemption in heaven. But the Bible clearly teaches that there will be a day, there is a coming day, a day of judgment, when all humans will be held accountable before God. This day of the Lord will be a day when God will pour out his wrath upon all those who rejected him. Now, to to be delivered from this day of of destruction. For someone to be delivered from this day of destruction, Jesus performs a rescue operation. (laughs) He rescues us. Rescues his people as their saviour. Back in the early 80s, I was at Huntington Beach one day, and I had taken a, a big group of kids uh, from our church on a day camp trip to the beach. About 80 kids, a couple parents, a few counselors, and myself. And I'm out in the water, swimming along, and all of a sudden I realized I could not get back to, uh, to land. I was caught in a riptide. So I looked up, and there was a uh, lifeguard stand with... Trusty Mr. Lifeguard sitting there, and I had to make uh, some rather um, frantic gestures to get him to look my way, and uh, he came out with the you know the equipment and, and brought me in. Needless to say, a very uh, embarrassing situation. You know, I thought I was a really strong swimmer, and here I am in front of this whole group of kids who thought I was their you know their hero uh, that he couldn't make it in. You know, and I had to get rescued. I was helpless. Jesus performs a rescue operation on us as our Savior. Now, salvation is also God's good news. It should come as no surprise. But if you look at verses 22 through 24, you may wonder, how is that a picture of good news? I mean, we're talking about God sending Adam and Eve out of the garden. Literally driving them out of the garden. Expelling them from the garden. So how's that good news? I want you to think with me about this for a moment. I believe that God's grace and mercy and kindness and love are seen as he drives them out of the garden. I do not believe this is a picture of severity. Some people would look at this and say, wow, that's pretty severe. God kicked them out of the garden. In fact, one commentator said, you know, they didn't want to leave, so God had to force them out. Think of it this way. Now, had they not sinned, Adam and Eve would have lived forever with God in a perfect state in the garden. Paradise. But since they sinned, God was not going to allow them to live in a sinful state forever. A Savior, a Deliverer, a Redeemer had been promised. God was already moving to redeem fallen man. And so what God does as he expels them from the garden is he rescues them. He rescues them from eternal misery and sin that would result if they ate of the tree of life in their sinful condition. We see God's kindness. But there's something else we see in this picture. In Scripture, now you've got here the cherubim and the flaming sword, signifying the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. Now, in Scripture, when cherubim are referenced, when they are associated uh, here on earth, they are signifying a meeting place with God. That cherubim are associated with the presence and the glory of God. And, for example, when you, when you see them in the tabernacle, that is signifying a meeting place, a, the place to meet God. Now, Adam and Eve and their descendants were prohibited from eating the tree of life by God's mercy. Because if they would have eaten that tree of life in their sinful condition, they would have lived in their sinful condition forever. But, and here's here's an idea, but they could still come and meet with God there. Now, some believe that the cherubim and the flaming sword which was guarding the way of the tree of life was like a, a huge uh, keep out sign don't come here but I want to I give you another idea about this how about this idea they were guarding the tree of life they were guarding the way to the tree of life so that no one would block the way to the tree of life because in essence This was for Adam and Eve and their descendants pre-flood, their holy of holies, their meeting place with God in their sinful condition. Now, will we see Adam and Eve in heaven? I believe we will, based upon the fact that I believe they were saved by faith in God's promise of a Savior. You see, I believe this scene in verses 22 through 24 shows God instituting a mode of worship that he's establishing that shows his anger at sin, that he must deal with sin, but also to teach the mediation of a Savior, to teach the mediation of a promised Savior as the way of life, but also as the way of access to God. I believe that these verses are proclaiming God's good news. That the way of salvation for Adam and Eve and those who followed them before the flood was such that they needed to come to God on the basis of faith in a promised Savior. And that these cherubim, later used as we see in the temple, and the tabernacle, God said of them, I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim. We've got this picture of a mercy seat. Signifying a word that you probably didn't use very many times this week. Propitiation. This idea of a sacrifice. Of a passing by or passing over sin. It gives the idea of appeasing God's wrath against sin. You see, the mercy seat would be covered with blood. And Jesus covers us from the judgment of God against sin. The, the mercy seat covered with blood would shield from judgment. And Christ's sacrifice completely covers our sins. The mercy seat also signifies finished work. That Jesus made one sacrifice, then he sat down. Now as then, God's good news Uh, is to be proclaimed everywhere. God himself proclaimed it. Flip over to Genesis chapter 12, or turn there, or go there. Genesis 12, verse 3, God speaks to Abram. He says, go forth from your country, from your relatives, to a land that I will show you, that I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And then in verse 3, God says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's promise to Abram. Have you ever wondered where the first place in the Bible is that the gospel was preached? I believe it was Genesis 3.15. But have you ever wondered where in the Bible the Bible says the gospel was first preached? It's Genesis 12.3. Look at Galatians 3.8 for, for some proof. Galatians 3.8 says that the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Justification by faith is what it was teaching. 450 years before the law ever came in, God preached the gospel to Abraham In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed on the basis of justification by faith. The prophets proclaimed God's good news. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 3 and verse 18, Peter is preaching. The, at the portico of Solomon, and he is, this is his second sermon, and he says, but th- in verse 18, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And then over to verse 24, likewise, all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and his successors onward, also announced these days. The apostles proclaimed God's good news. Paul, in particular, in Romans chapter 1 said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Now, the Greek word used there for power is the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get our English word dynamite. Paul is saying the gospel is God's dynamite. It, it moves things. It changes things. God transforms our life through the gospel. All believers are also to proclaim God's good news. We are instructed in, in the Great Commission, go and make disciples. In 1 Peter 3, we're instructed to always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in us with, with gentleness and, and reverence. How about Romans 10? Go to Romans 10 for a moment. In Romans 10, we are given some instruction regarding the sharing of the good news. Romans ten fourteen: How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear it without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, and here's a quote from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Some of you here have very beautiful feet because you consistently and continuously share the good news of the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Sharing our faith, evangelism, is, is really the idea of sharing our faith Our faith, sharing the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, and leaving the outcome to God, leaving the results with Him. We're to be fishers of men. When I was a kid, my crowning glory as a kid came when I was 10 years old. When I was 10 years old, in one day, I caught 40 fish. And this is the son of a Los Angeles policeman who was allowed by his parents to catch 40 fish in one day. Now, does that make me a fisherman? The fact that I caught 40 fish on Tinnemaha Creek up near Bishop in about 1972. Does that make me a fisherman? No. What it does, it makes me a former fisherman. Unless, of course, I'm fishing today. Now, recently I did go on the fishing trip with the guys, and I caught five fish over two days, so I guess I'm still a fisherman. In the 31-day challenge that many of you are going through as you uh, seek to read the word and pray with your family for 31 days, yesterday's reading was in Acts chapter 8, verses 25 through 40, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. I love that story, and I love this this aspect of it. He came up, ran up, and the man was reading from Isaiah. And he asked him if he understands what he's reading, and he says, well, how can I unless someone helps me? He invites him to come into the chariot, and, and this is the beautiful, beautiful thing. It says that starting from that scripture, he preached Jesus to him. See, we need to be able from any scripture to preach Jesus. Starting anywhere, wherever someone wants to begin and preach Jesus. When was the last time you you loved someone and shared with them the truth of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ? Now, by the way, uh, in evangelism there is no limit Now, as we close, there may be some among us who, you know, would firmly believe what we've been talking about. Salvation is, is God's idea. It's his work. It's his good news. But you also may have some nagging questions, either for yourself or for someone else. And it is very common, very common. I want to address three common questions. The first is, what, sa- what is saving faith? The Bible teaches that justification is by faith alone and that faith is a part that is necessary to be saved. So we need to know what is saving faith. Now in James chapter 2 and verse 15, he tells us what what saving faith is not. James says, what profit is it if someone says he has faith but he has not works? Can that faith save him? And what James is pointing to is that there is a difference between mere profession of faith and actual uh, reality, the reality of faith. That anyone can say they have faith. But just saying it with no fruit or proof of God being at work in the life is not saving faith. Saving faith is characterized by three things, and you can really put them any way you want. Uh, This is just one way to say it. But first of all, a knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the truth. Jesus said in John 8, 32, you will know the truth, and what? The truth will set you free. It matters what you believe. Belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ is integral to saving faith. And the heart of the gospel is that Jesus took God's full wrath against sin upon himself, on the cross, and because he paid the debt of sin on behalf of those who believe, they are forgiven, and they become, get this, this is so amazing, the righteousness of God in Christ. That God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's amazing. The second thing is, not just Knowing the truth, but agreeing with the truth. It's important we know the truth, but we've got to also align with it. The devil knows the truth, but he hates it with every fiber of his being. We must, in a sense, affirm or give intellectual assent to the truth of the gospel. We align with it. Yes, we agree. And the third thing really can go along with the second. It's trust in the truth. That there is an element of trust in saving faith. That we may say a chair can hold our weight, but we do not show personal trust until we sit down. That trust involves the will as well as the mind. And that saving faith is demonstrated in personal trust, personal faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, go to Ephesians 2 for a moment. Go to Ephesians 2. Because there we are said, those who came to know Jesus, were said prior to that to be dead. Dead. Now, I've, I've been, I've seen dead people, and I've never seen a dead person do anything. And, 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 and what Ephesians 2 says is, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. And in verse 8 we read that, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Nobody can boast. That grace and the faith to believe are gifts from God. Now how do you know if you've got saving faith? This question is really one of assurance of salvation. Many aren't sure if they're saved or not. Now, some people are are not saved and they know it. They are uh, aware and they're opposed, and it's clear, and they let you know. Okay. Now there are some people who are saved and know it. Beautiful. Some are not saved and they think they are. That's tragic. But there are some people who are saved and they continue to be uncertain. They continue to be unsure. They they are sometimes doubting. Maybe maybe sometimes because of a troubled conscience. Maybe sometimes because of their past. Maybe sometimes because of a teaching that they received when they were younger. Whatever the case, there are those that are saved but they are continually wavering, not quite sure. I just want to ask one thing if you if you if you happen to be there or you know someone who's there think about first john chapter 5 verse 11 and 12 writing to believers the word says the testimony is this that god has given us eternal life and this life is in his son he who has the son has the life he who does not have the son of god does not have the life so the question is simple do you have jesus have you come to faith in christ then you're saved. And, and God wants you to be sure of it. But you know, the, the hard part about this one is you can't make somebody be sure. You can't, you can't force that upon someone and say, well, just believe it, you know, just feel better about it. There are some that for some it is a struggle. And, I, and I'm aware of that. I can say, look at the truth. Even in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, another question that goes with this is, can I lose my salvation? You know, is there something I might do? Is there some sin that I might commit that will cause me to not be a believer anymore? It's a common, common question. I want you to go to John chapter 10 quickly, and I want to, want to read something to you in the context of Jesus Speaking of himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd. You remember John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Now, Jesus says in John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And look at verse 28. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. He goes on to say in verse 29 that no one will be able to snatch them out of my father's hand. See, many, th- many people think they, they could lose their salvation. But it's not based upon God's word. It's based upon man's limited understanding. It's, based, it's really a works thing if you think about it. I've got to keep working myself to keep myself in Christ. And that's, that's not what the scriptures teach. Now, salvation is a gift of God. We know that. It can't be earned. We can't save ourselves. But there's really only two ways uh, to approach God. Really, two ways. One is wearing fig leaves of our own design, trying in vain to cover our sin. Or the other way, through God's perfect provision, the Savior. Christ Jesus. See, covering ourselves with our own good works and our own effort is like Adam and Eve covering themselves with fig leaves. Our good works can't save us, they're filthy rags. We can't be good enough. Jeremiah 17:9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Salvation is only through Jesus. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so I don't want to end this sermon without giving you an opportunity to examine yourself, to see if you're in the faith. If you're not resting in Christ alone for salvation, I encourage you, I plead with you, to set aside your unbelief, to set aside your self-effort, and in humility receive the salvation that Jesus offers freely. You see, the wages of sin is death. We deserve separation from God. But the free gift is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The only hope that's going to remain is hope in God's faithfulness seen in the face of Christ. Believers in Jesus are born again to a living hope. And that hope we have is an anchor for our souls. See, Adam and Eve, they were clothed in a garment that was purchased with the life of another. Salvation means we are clothed with a garment of righteousness that was purchased with the life of another. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you. We come to you, Lord, actually in joy, in thankfulness, and in humility, that your blessing is greater than the curse of sin, and that Jesus is our blessing. Oh, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we're dismissed today, I want to ask you to stand with me, and I just want to read you a verse that tells a story of a river and a tree. It's found in the last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Go in peace and serve the Lord.